0: Greetings, this is The Pub, Straylight Magazine's podcast about all things books and publishing. I'm Dean Karpowitz, editor of the journal and regular contributor to the podcast. Today on the show, we talk with Rebecca Kwang, author of The Poppy War. Our discussion covers her novel, the process of writing it, and her views on history, myth, and politics in writing. I was joined by editors Allie Ryan and Sam Steinke for the interview. We hope you enjoy it. Rebecca Quang is the Nebula, Locus, Campbell, and World Fantasy Award-nominated author of The Poppy War and its sequel, The Dragon Republic. She is currently pursuing a Master's in Philosophy and Modern Chinese Studies at Cambridge University on a Marshall Scholarship, where her dissertation examines propaganda literature by Northeast writers during the Second Sino-Japanese War. Her debut, The Poppy War, was listed by Time, Amazon, Goodreads, and The Guardian as one of the best books of 2018 and has won the Crawford Award and Compton Crook Award for Best First Novel. Thanks so much for joining us today, Rebecca. Um, When Jung uh, tries to convince Rin to pledge lore, which is essentially the study of history, myth, and religion, he argues that it's the most important of all the disciplines. Um, Can you talk a little bit about the importance of history, myth, and the stories that are prized culturally both in the novel and out?
1: Yeah, I love that question. So Jiang is actually making an impassioned case for the humanities in this era of STEM funding. (laughs) Um, But I, yeah, I'm really glad you picked up on that because something that I tried to do in the novel was portray the way that a lot of stories and myths have multiple different versions. So even when you're learning about the trifecta for the first time at the shadow puppet show, Rin has all these questions and they're talking about the ways that different groups or different age groups or people from different regions see the trifecta differently and their rain their and their fall and their rise differently. Um, and nobody is sure what the truth is. And really, it says more about the person telling the myth than the truth of the myth itself. So, like, for example, when they're in the classroom talking about what happened to the Spearleys and uh, the Spearly Queen's decision, they're equally confused, and they're wondering, uh, was she, you know, a stupid woman in love, or was she doing something heroic to save her people? And um, that that gets into questions of power and who controls memory and public memory, because memory isn't faithful, but it is, in fact, Warped to super pseudo purposes, and this was coming off of. Um, so I, I wrote my dissertation, my undergrad dissertation on the ways that the the Rape of Nanjing and the uh, history of the Second Sino-Japanese War, the War of Resistance, aka World War Two in China, has been utilized and the and politically by the um, the Chinese Communist Party and the way that. Uh, authoritarian regimes spin narratives about previous pain. So, like, nobody's gonna deny, right, that horrible things happened during World War II in China. Uh, But it's very different to say, between saying, The rape of Nanjing was a horrible atrocity that never should have happened and uh, was a human rights violation that Japan needs to apologize for versus justifying an incredibly aggressive foreign policy, justifying anti-Japanese sentiment and stoking a lot of domestic nationalism in the way that the Chinese government does. Uh, And it's not this is this control over history is not something that just authoritarian Chinese governments do. Right. Like Mm -hmm. think about the ways that um, the civil war has been memorialized in the U.S uh the ways that you know the days of the good old South has been remembered mm-hmm. in places like Texas and Georgia versus the way that you know other groups remember them and like the symbolism around like civil war memorials and statues um I think says a lot about the ways that history is weaponized. Um I mean I could go on about this for a long time. Um but I think Paul Cohen has a really good book on this. It's called History and Popular Memory, mm-hmm. um The Power of Story in Moments of Crisis and it's about mm-hmm. six different Uh, true historical incidents that happen across different eras in different countries and the ways that they have been memorialized and um, uh, not not lied about, but just remembered differently by uh, different regimes for different purposes. And I think it was really illuminating in the ways that uh, storytelling has this Incredible power. It just doesn't. It doesn't just like stoke people's sentiments, right? It it literally controls the way that a regime um, remembers the past.
0: Well, and it speaks to how, at least politically, how I guess now, the citizenry even here uh, is aware of the way those narratives are prized, right? Like the, the whole discussion that we're having or have had about monuments and whether they should stay up or come down and all that sort of stuff says something about the way we imagine our meta narrative playing out.
1: Yeah. Well, that- yeah, definitely. And also like, it's like it's not even about story and myth. It's just literally the way that history is taught. Mm-hmm. And like all of American history and public education is a massive lie. Mm-hmm. Um, and everybody <laughs> has this just moment going of awakening. To say that. <laughs> Yeah, we all have this moment of
2: awakening in college where we're like, wait,
1: the pilgrims and the Indians weren't really having that much fun.
0: Yeah, right.
2: Or the fact that like in the South, sometimes some of the schools literally teach it as a Southern rebellion and talk about more how the land was decimated by the Northern armies rather than the fact like the whole slavery aspect uh, or that sort of aspect of it. Like we literally tell history differently depending on how we're interpreting it. And, like, we see this in our public public education systems, too. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah wasn't there that textbook that referred <gasps> yes. to slavery as, Indentured like,
2: servants or something? No, it's
1: not. It wasn't just that. It was, like, immigration for yeah. work opportunities or something. Yeah. yeah. Else.
2: yeah. Like, <laughs> hey, no. my choice or something. Yeah. Yeah, and, like, some student it was, like, <laughs> students who saw it, and they're the ones who brought it to everybody's attention. And they're like, wait a sec, this isn't right. And so then there was a whole, like, protest about this to get these b- textbooks removed. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think I, like when we have conversations about diversity in publishing, right, and diversity of yeah. not just the kind of stories we're telling, but the kind of authors who get to tell them, yeah. and that has such a huge impact on how people view history and people who look different from them. Like, there was that book a couple, was it last year? There was this book called like, George Washington's Birthday that was a children's picture book about slaves in the White House baking a cake oh, for george washington and oh. it basically portrayed their lives as this happy like oh, oh i know look what at you're us. talking we're about we're so lucky we get to bake a cake <gasps> for the president and it's I like know no those this. people were slaves like oh. they their autonomy was stripped from them because um of massive violence like this is not a happy story about a little girl baking a birthday
2: cake yeah, yeah i know exactly so... what you're talking about i didn't even know that existed and now i'm appalled
0: one of one of the I things I think
2: the book has canceled, but I'm not sure. Oh, I hope
1: so. Yeah, one <laughs> of the things yeah, right. <laughs>
0: One of the things I find heartening as an educator though is the fact that, you know, as Ali kind of kind of put it, the kids are the one that yeah. that are the ones that are noticing these discrepancies, oh, okay. yeah, and bringing them to the attention of the the teachers.
3: Well, because there's this like generational rift between people just not Not caring about these issues at all Mm -hmm. versus now people are a lot more socially aware and a lot more tuned in to social injustice Mm -hmm. and want to actually do something about it. I mean, I have too many conversations with people my parents age or older well, and they just constantly are like you don't know what you're talking about i'm like you don't know what you're talking about why do you
2: think that this is okay yeah i don't know if it's fair to, fair to say that like they, they, nobody cared about it before because otherwise the conversation wouldn't have happened mm, at all true. and it's been yeah. it's more like a snowball effect it takes more and more and more people yeah. and eventually you, it starts tipping yeah. but like it was there was a long time where things weren't tipping
0: yeah yeah
2: and we just see more of it now and now we see more people like buying into this idea like yes we should say something yeah but yeah
1: yeah i do think part of it is generational and i think part of it is also social media just Mm -hmm. because there are platforms and ways to access information that literally didn't exist like 20 years ago like i still have a tumblr account even though i don't post anything and sometimes i just like scroll through the memes and it's like you have middle schools on there screaming about eating the rich and it's like (laughs) wow gen z is really woke i know
0: yeah, but then there's that other side, right? I mean, it's it's also a platform for those... You know, I, I, know, I have friends who post things that are n- not even, you know, controversial and get death threats and, you know, mm. um, from really conservative folks who are offended in one way or another that, you know, a woman is posting so- something or, you know, a trans person is posting something. So, I mean, Twitter can be... A a beast.
3: It's like a beautiful monster. Yeah, because you can use it for like wonderful things, but then it can also end people's careers, completely tear them down, make them look horrible in front of the entire world. Like it's insane. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: What wasn't? I mean, did you follow the whole um, the whole puppies at the Hugo's uh, controversy? Rebecca I that, mean, was a,
1: that all happened a little bit before I got into the industry so yeah. I've only heard stories about it yeah um, but yeah, yeah I know I, very well what happened yeah
0: yeah it's it's very disheartening um, let's talk more about the poppy war <laughs> a really good novel um, so after Rin becomes a student of lore uh, Jiang uh, teaches her how to meditate in a way that allows her access to the gods Uh, When she returns from the mountain that he sends her to, uh, first with the pig and then Mm -hmm. to uh, meditate, um, she's found harmony. He sort of says that she's been cured of the sort of imbalance that existed inside of her. Yet that same access allows her the easiest path, direct path to corruption, chaos and power. Um, Was that something that you thought about when you were writing the book?
1: Yeah, so it's very simply just that the cure is very much the disease, mm-hmm. in that this is this is a neutral thing, right? The state of enlightenment and knowing more about the gods is an utterly neutral thing, and you can use it in a way to uh, be at one with the universe, be in harmony with it, and have a heightened understanding of the forces shaping the world, which is what a lot of cultures in this book, in fact, do. I mean. All of the tribes in the hinterlands, like that—that's how they commune with the gods, and that is their system of worship. And is it is not unstable or violent. And Rin's problem is just that she's super extreme, and that doesn't mm-hmm. work for her. Yeah. Um. But yeah. So I mean, her problem was initially that she already had access to the gods because she is a spearly, and the phoenix is already reaching out to her, so she can't escape. Um, that connection, and she can't escape its call. So John's reasoning is that the only way to make this calm down is for her to understand and get a bit of bigger picture of what is going on and why she is seeing these things in her mind and literally calling fire down into the world. Mm-hmm. And it works for a little bit. The issue is just that home girl does not have a calm personality. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, and she laments kind of losing him, right? That, that sort of guide that she had.
1: Yeah, I, so I really, really love student-teacher stories yes. and uh, stories really about failed mentorships. And this is a really big trope, especially in Chinese literature, mm-hmm. um, the whole idea of the Kung Fu master and the headstrong, <laughs> stubborn student. And either, you know, they out their relationship problems, and he, he recognizes that his master was not, in fact, annoying but very wise about a lot of things, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, there's this moment of understanding and mutual acknowledgement, um, but there's always this trope of, like, the, the failed apprentice who mm-hmm. has this toxic relationship with a mentor now because the mentor let them down in some way or their personalities just clash, and in a lot of ways, that's Rin, Jiang, and Alton, um, and I think actually the best example of this story form is in Kung Fu Panda, where um, <laughs> they have Po and Master Shifu and what's his name, the snow leopard, Kai Long, I think. Mm-hmm. And it, it's just like, it's, it's such a trope. Like, the bad guy is the former student, and it comes down to a reckoning with the ways in which the teacher failed him. Um, and it's just so beautiful at the end <laughs> where Master Shifu like recognizes what he did wrong. Um, so yeah, I was drawing on many many decades of uh, story tradition when yeah. I wrote Rin's relationship with Jiang. Yeah, Yang.
0: yeah. Uh, in more than one place in the novel, the gods are described as quote unquote sort of natural, sort of natural forces. They're devoid of needs and desires. Although it seems like the phoenix has <laughs> some uh, intent. Uh, yet people, the people of the novel that you populate the novel with, have choices. Uh, Near the end, um, Rin speaks to the phoenix, and she talks about destiny, uh, and the phoenix sort of corrects her, uh, pointing out that every situation that Rin had found herself in throughout the novel, she made choices, and those choices had consequences. Um, Yet, as Rin kind of moves through her life um, and her sort of ascendance, she tells herself, in several spots, that she just has no choice. She has to act in the way that she does. Uh, Can you talk about the way the novel deals with choice, uh, destiny, and morality?
1: Yeah, so first we have to clarify the way that the novel conceives of the gods, um, because it's not they actually do not have intentions or desires or agendas. They just are. Mm-hmm. Like, the, the phoenix doesn't want destruction and burning. That That is literally what the phoenix is. The phoenix is one of the fundamental forces. Uh, in, in the Poppy War, there are 64. This is made up religion, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, these are just fundamental impulses that balance each other out. So you have fire, you have water, you have air, you have the earth, you have life, you have death, you have light, you have the dark, right? They are just things and um, it's like they're they're like the color palette that the universe is made up of mm-hmm. um, and that gets into uh, so that's relevant to the question of choice and uh, individual culpability because at the end Rin is like, oh no you made me do this um, this is all the God's fault and there's like one way of perceiving of everything that's happened as um, manipulation by the gods which I think humans, always bring as an excuse to justify horrible things Mm. they do like oh we are just you know pawns in a chessboard and look at what the gods have done to us uh this is the god's will but actually the phoenix is reminding rin that no the gods just exist they're they're just beings of power but they don't want anything they don't want to see history flow in any particular way because Those 64 gods, they are utterly balanced. Uh, They are imbalanced when humans pull them into the material world and use them for their own purposes. So everything that happens in the Poppy War, even though it is a novel about gods and monsters, they're at the root of every terrible thing that happens. That's a human decision. Mm -hmm. Um, And humans are entirely controlled. So that dialogue at the end is um, how... I make clear that Rin has no excuse to avoid culpability. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and Alton seems to understand that, right? I mean, he's consciously making but choices. But
2: Alton's confused about everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you kind of mentioned this earlier, but there seem to be like a lot of parallels between China's experience of World War II and Nikon's um, second poppy war. So how is the history of China in the past century or so shaped the story of Nikon and the Federation?
1: It basically just informed the entire plot. So when I was at Georgetown, I was studying uh, the War of Resistance from 1937 to 1945, um, and the sequence of events, so like the Battle of Shanghai, and Mm -hmm. then the Nanjing Massacre, and then the way that the war plays out thereafter, um, directly uh, maps onto the plot line in Acts 2 and 3 of the Poppy War, um, and there are just like entire battles and sieges where I, you know, because it's like it's hard to make up a war in your own mind. Like, you yeah. not only have to master military strategy and figure out how you're going to fight one campaign, you then have to master the campaign from the other side. So it's just easier if you like steal from what dead <laughs> generals actually did. Um, so, like, everything at the Siege of Kurdaline is based on something that actually happened at Shanghai, and everything that happens at Golan Nice. Um, so there's not a single thing that happens at Golanese that didn't actually happen during the rape of Nanjing, which mm. I think stuns a lot of people. Yeah. Like yeah. this isn't I like thought that was in my
2: imagination be- at first. So that's why I was like, I was so certain. I'm like, I can't imagine like this isn't exactly it. Cause I was looking at it and like, I'm a history, ma- I was a history major as well. So for me, every single thing I was like, I swear, this is everything that was happening. <laughs>
1: Yeah, like, I didn't make up any of that. Like, this isn't, like, some grimdark exaggeration of what happened. It is just a transcription of things that did happen to people. Like, I didn't even include the worst of it. Like, so much more happened at Nanjing that I didn't have the stomach to write about, um, which is really tragic and horrifying. But I have received letters from a lot of readers mentioning how they didn't know a lot about the massacre before they read the Poppy War and that it inspired them to pick up some history books about it. So that feels good. Like knowing that I expanded some people's um conceptions and worldviews of what World War II looked like in countries that weren't primarily composed of white people, um, feels pretty good. It makes me feel like I've achieved what I set out to do with the novel. Um and then just more generally, the so China's 20th century Informed um, the like the geopolitical positions of the Nikar Empire and the Federation of Lucan at the start of the war, because you have this huge empire that is uh, is struggling to modernize, and then you have this much smaller nation that is really ambitious, that it is very technologically modern, uh, because like you know Japan's just gone through the Meiji Restoration, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, it's the inevitable clash of what happens when that smaller power decides that it ought to have the right to rule the rest of the continent. Um, so, yeah, that it was very nice that history is full of these very convenient mm. plot packages that you can just import directly into fantasy. Mm-hmm.
3: That's one of the things that I personally love about historical fiction in general is just that it broadens a reader's perspective, I think, even more so than just basic fiction or basic mm-hmm. fantasy because yeah. it has that cultural context of whatever that context is whether you know it's historical china historical russia you know whatever it is it's giving that outside perspective and i just i always think that's really cool i gravitate a lot personally to historical fiction or fantasy but i really liked yours especially just because it had that fantasy element where a lot of times you just see historical fiction and not necessarily historical fantasy so i thought that was pretty cool
1: yeah it was a lot of fun to write for sure Mm -hmm.
2: so um Another, with Rin, like, something that was really interesting is, like, for women, like, a symbol of their womanhood is the uterus. But for Rin, she had her uterus removed in, or, in like, when she was starting to have her first menstrual cycle. And um, why does, so why does Rin have to remove her womanhood in order to succeed at the Academy? Is this in any way related to the origin story of the Reunited Empire in which the Viperus states that war is not a place for women? And does Rin's femaleness somehow impact her ability in battle or her ability to be a warrior um
1: so there are two sides to that story so there's one reading of rin's um uterus destroying potion uh, chemically induced hysterectomy uh that reads as this very emancipatory like wow look at this young girl taking control of her own body Mm -hmm. uh and getting rid of periods just because she feels like it um and then there's another much more tragic reading i think that says, here's a very young girl who is not old enough or mature enough to understand the magnitude of what she's doing, who's being pressured by the medical professionals who are supposed to help her and all the other students and Mm -hmm. instructors at this academy, uh, and made to believe that literally the only way that she can stay at school is if she makes this life-altering decision that she may or may not regret later. Mm -hmm. And I mean, like, that's child abuse. Like, that's Mm -hmm. really sad. And it's difficult to write female protagonists in a historical setting, because you, you have the patriarchy that's like, you know, you, you're writing against page historically accurate patriarchy that would have existed. Um, so it's not like you can just wave a magic wand and say, oh, actually, mm-hmm. like they, yeah. it, they had equal rights for women. Uh, but there's a difference, I think, between a text that is patriarchal and a text that involves a patriarchal world. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, I thought it was important to Realistically, depict attitudes and the obstacles facing women who wanted to be in positions of power. So, if you think about it, actually, all the women in important positions of power in Rin's life in the Poppy War are women. Like, the mm-hmm. leader of this entire country is a woman. Mm-hmm. The most important figure in her early life is her aunt, not her uncle, because her mm-hmm. aunt is the one running this drug ring. Uh, the grand headmaster of the academy at Synagogue is also a woman. Uh, mm-hmm. And this is also historically accurate because you have all these cases of individual women women who succeeded, even though that didn't mean that the playing field was equal for mm-hmm. women overall. And you have this unfortunate situation where the, the small numbers of women who succeed uh, think that the only way that they got there was yeah. by not being like other women. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Rin herself buys totally into this mentality i mean i I don't think you can call rin a feminist figure right Mm -hmm. because she at Mm -hmm. no point does she ever think that there's there's something wrong with the fact that the majority of her relationships are with men that the majority of people she sees in the army are men she just thinks that this is totally normal but she's going to be the exception and i think it's important when we're portraying feminist texts to like acknowledge the, that there are different types of stories on the spectrum between like a feminist utopia, like mm-hmm. like Naomi Ackerman's the power, right? Like where women have all mm-hmm. the electric zapping yeah. power yeah. and texts that are just like totally tone deaf to all of this. That's Yeah, that's
3: super interesting. And kind of not going off of that exactly, but going off of your thoughts and your type of writing in general. Um, as I was reading, I noticed right away that um, your personal writing style is very unique, in my opinion, and extremely accomplished. Um, You combine a sort of eloquence with a way of casual speaking that I haven't really seen a lot of when I've read other um, books kind of in the same vein as yours. Um, And it led me to wonder how you went about developing your writing style. Um, Was it something that was intentional on your part to have that kind of balance between casual being casual and being eloquent or was it just something that came naturally to you as a writer?
1: Um, Yeah. So I think it's true that in a lot of high fantasy and epic fantasy, you find this very stilted speaking style, this dialogue style that seems like it came straight out of the Iliad. (laughs) Um, And I, I never liked that. I always thought it sounded a little bit pretentious. Um, So my, I think when I started writing, Uh, the author that I admired the most in the book that was the biggest influence on me was Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card. Mm -hmm. And it is difficult, you know, praising that work because of the political views of the author, uh, which I strongly disagree with. (laughs) Um, But that, that book does such a brilliant job of portraying these very complicated young characters who make like, decisions that alter the fate of humanity and the universe, but are also like they're kids and they make like poop jokes and dick jokes. (laughs) And they talk in this incredibly colloquial, like casual, like irreverent style that I thought was just such a cool juxtaposition because the heroes that are very formal and Shakespearean in their dialogue, like they don't seem like real people. They don't seem like people who have an edge on them. But like Ender and his friends and their inside jokes and their offhand references and like they're basically talking in meme, although I don't. (laughs) Well, part of it might just be that I'm like Gen Z slash millennial and I also like think and dream in meme Mm -hmm. um, and just have like a, you know, irreverence towards everything. Um, But I just like couldn't imagine writing in any other way. See, and that's really
3: interesting because kind of going off of that, I also noticed that you have this kind of realistic, uh, occasionally dark humor throughout your book, which I love. And I was like, for example, I was sold on page two as soon as, to paraphrase, a student asked, what if I have to defecate? (laughs) and i was not expecting that at all because when i when i yeah yeah, it was during the exam and so when i first started reading that you know i'm like all right they're gonna take this test and he's like hey when am i gonna be able to poop back here and i was like okay this is how it's gonna be and i love it um i was not expecting that at all because generally when a book is categorized in a historical way i'm usually expecting it to be pretty serious and obviously your book still has many of those serious traits um but you took it a step further and made it funny at a lot of different points. So what made you decide to include this like dark humor?
1: Well, so again, I think a big part of it is just that millennials are like fundamentally incapable of taking ourselves seriously. And anytime mm-hmm. anything starts getting too deep, we always take a step back <laughs> and we're like, Whew, all right. So well, That was scary. That was a lot. Um, moving on. Uh, But also, there is a really long tradition of bleak, dark humor in Chinese fiction, particularly. And I'm not even, I mean, I haven't read enough of other countries' fiction to be able to make this claim with authority. But I think that Uh, This fiction exists in any country that has been through a period of extreme political Mm. trauma. Mm. Uh, Like, I'm guessing that post-Soviet era Russian literature is very much like this, too, uh, where you have this, like, scar literature or this absurdist avant-garde type of literature that is that can only make sense of the world and all the ways in which it's been broken with this incredibly bleak dark humor mm-hmm. and you see a lot of this in Chinese literature starting from the 1980s like post the cultural revolution, post um, all the political purges and uh, the the public executions and the constant uh, censorship and political repression and once people finally start being able to tell stories again like a lot of authors the only thing that they could do was just laugh Mm -hmm. Uh, and yeah and i'm sure there are a lot of psychological reasons why this is such a universal human impulse but i do think it's important to portray the ways that sometimes things get so awful that you can only start conceiving of them as the absurd yeah
0: Yeah. that reminds me a bit of the the russian absurdists right like dostoevsky who spent some time in an uh, in mm-hmm. Siberia, right? And what he produces after is like the, the underground man, you know, the political sort of oppression producing a level of we all we can do is laugh, right? Mm-hmm. It, at the end of the novel, when Rin unleashes fire on Mugen, uh, she closes herself uh, to the guilt by uh, the act that she's committed by saying three times, uh, those aren't lives, referring to the people. Um, that she destroys. Uh, there's a central irony in her view. Um, in effect, uh, it was the same justification used to wipe out the Spearlies. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the way the novel comments on the danger of dehumanization?
1: Yeah, so the whole novel is definitely centrally about cycles of dehumanization. Mm-hmm. Um, and like that that mental trick of two plus two equals five, and humans are animals are objects mm-hmm. is such a difficult concept to wrap your mind around and it like the like you talk to the average person you say and you t- like give them a gun and you say like conceive of this other person on the street as just like a rock or something and shoot them like that's really hard to do you can't do that but at the same time it's really easy to do once you have enough nationalist mythology and propaganda around you Um, so, so at the start of the book or, you know, at the start of parts two and three, when the soldiers from the Federation start committing all of their atrocities, that's based on a particular kind of, um, brainwashing and, uh, political education that Japanese troops Mm -hmm. were put through where they were forced to believe that, you know, they're, their victims were nothing more than ants than insects mm-hmm. and therefore could be easily quashed. And, um, I mean, that's obviously awful, but, uh, the, the book is also a comment on like what happens when that violence gets so bad that there's a retaliation. And then Rin starts mm-hmm. thinking that same way about her enemy. Yeah. And this, this is further explored in books two and three, where she has to keep dealing with the residual Muganese troops that, um, you know, are still on the continent and don't have a place to go and don't have a leader to fight for and are homeless soldiers, and she still can't think of them as human anymore because of all the things that she's seen them do. And it's about how cycles of violence perpetuate themselves, which is something we are also seeing um, in modern-day Sino-Japanese relations Mm -hmm. with the way that the Chinese Communist Party is spinning narratives about World War II to justify animosity towards Japan's government today, which is very, very different from Imperial Japan. Uh, But that's a nuance that is lost when you're just showing images of the rape of Nanjing over and over again. Yeah. but it's not even just about national cycles of dehumanization, it's also about personal cycles of violence and abuse and trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, because everything that has happened to Alton throughout his life has made him the sort of person who thinks it is totally normal to like slap Rin around and choke her mm-hmm. and hit her and mm-hmm. you know like demean her at every turn. And then Rin starts thinking that's normal and that filters into the ways that she has interpersonal relations for the rest of the trilogy. And mm-hmm. yeah, I mean like violence begets a violence and it's such a very simple concept, but we seem to forget it all the time.
0: Yeah. The sort of way it plays out on the larger scale is r- really, you know, becomes personal. Your characters are dealing with that, you know, the same kind of issues.
3: I also think it's interesting that all of Rin's Mentors or people in her life that could possibly at all be good influences all end up gone, yeah, Mm -hmm.
1: you know, yeah,
2: (laughs) yeah. Well, it kind of is interesting because it goes back to what was being talked about before is how you interpret history and like how you look back at it, and like that then informs their behavior. Like, because from the beginning of the book, you can see that Rin is looking at history differently than how others have been looking at it, too, yeah, and she's willing to follow her interpretations of it,
0: yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: which are, like, her t- interpretations are, I think they abandon the spirulies on purpose, sort of thing, yeah. and then she then uses that later on, and that's in, that then affects how she does everything later on too, so how we interpret history, which is like seems to be like the idea of much of this novel, is like, it matters because look what it makes us do later on too
0: Yeah, and at least in this Yeah,
2: definitely.
0: In the, at least in this book the voices, there are divergent voices, jong's one is is one for instance they're kind of quelled right um
1: yeah that's why it's so devastating when they're in the mountain and she's begging for his help and he's like no i'm just gonna stay in my rock
0: yeah yeah. bye guys yeah exactly Mm -hmm. exactly um one question we always ask uh our our writers is do you have any advice for beginning writers
1: um yeah i think the biggest piece of advice I would give anyone, not just beginning writers, is just to make sure you're always reading a lot um, and to read really broadly, to not just read the kind of stuff you wanna write, although that's important, like I read a lot of sci-fi and fantasy, but to read thrillers, to read romances, read historical fiction, read the genres that you never think you would enjoy uh, because they're popular for a reason and a lot of people read them for a reason and read mm-hmm. them to see what those authors do well and what you could possibly learn from them. Like, I never yeah. thought I would be into crime novels mm-hmm. or, like, mysteries, and I'm still not super into them, but I do really love um, Tana French's Dublin Murder Squad series, and I learned a lot about, like, suspense and slowly revealing information to the reader um, and plot twists from those books. And... Yeah, like not everybody is lucky enough to um, have a writing instructor or to be able to go to a writing workshop. Um, And I had never taken a creative writing class before I started writing The Poppy War. Um, But I don't think that matters as long as you have access to books because you just infuse yourself with good writing and good storytelling. And like no matter where you are in your career, there's always something more you can learn. And the way you do that is just to read more.
3: It's like going to another country and submerging yourself in the language. Mm, yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you. I had a really fun time. Yes, awesome. Thanks. We did too.
0: <laughs> the pub is produced at the University of Wisconsin Parkside from the studio at WIPZ 101.5 FM. You can tune in Saturdays at noon to catch new episodes, and you can also find the pub on Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Or you can head over to our website at StraylightMag.com for fiction, poetry, art and of course, podcasts. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for regular updates on new content. Until next time, thanks for listening to The Pub, Straylight Magazine's podcast about all things books and publishing.